Hi there, I'm Will. And I'm Ted. And this is It Seemed Like a Good Idea. On this show, we take a look at uniquely Canadian feats, facts, and flubs that make this country the ingenious place that it is. We wrote a whole book about it, actually, called It Seemed Like a Good Idea. Which, clearly, we thought seemed like a good idea for a title, since you'll notice we've used it twice. Each week, we're going to give you a couple of all-true stories around a different theme. And today's theme is big. Okay, let me start us off with a story about a moose. Have you seen a moose in the wild? Actually, I have, uh, in a bunch of different places. The best time I ever saw a moose was I was being driven through Grossmorn Park in Newfoundland at dawn, and we counted 40 in, in about Whoa. an hour. That's amazing. That's, that's truly incredible. I think I've only seen one, and it was deceased. <laughs> was, it was not a pretty sight. Um, this story is about one specific moose named Mac, in, appropriately enough, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Mac was the biggest moose in the world at 9.8 meters tall. That's twice as tall as a giraffe. He has stood watching placidly over the highway since 1981, and he's made of concrete and painted. Moose Jaw was proud of their world record, and he was a popular roadside attraction for tourists. But little did they know that trouble was brewing. Across the Atlantic Ocean, an even taller moose was being built that would take their title from them, Storelgen. And if you think that name sounds like something out of Norse mythology, you pretty much nailed it. It's Norway's giant moose, and it is 10.1 glorious meters of polished chrome ungulate. And I'm, I'm just going to clarify there, because I didn't know what ungulate was, but I find that an ungulate is, in fact, a hooved animal. So those of you yeah. keeping score at home, that's one for you. <laughs> so the, the Norwegians with their ungulate, they said they weren't trying to take the record. They just wanted to build something to keep drivers awake and aware on a particularly boring stretch of highway near Stor Elvdal. And apparently it's been effective. So just to recap now, we've got Moose Jaw Mac standing at 9.8 meters, Sterelgen, 10.1 meters. That's right. So it's pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. But the Moose Javians weren't going to let it go at that. that. Have you heard that term, Moose Javians? It's apparently you know, correct. I was about to ask about that, but so implicit is my trust in your research skills, Will, that I, I just went with it. I'm, I'm truly honored. The word for that, too, what you call people from a place, a demonym. A demonym. Yeah. That's that's even better than ungulate. Well, I'm I know it's I'm yeah. learning stuff here. This is terrific. Okay, carry on. All right, so I'll carry on here. When Canadians think big, and someone thinks bigger, oh, I see you've put a pun or two in this script here. Canadians don't get <laughs> racked up about it. They think biggest. Now, as polite, easygoing Canadians, we can admit that Mac isn't going to win in the looks department. You can Google him. I have. Stephen Colbert called him a, did you hear the Stephen Colbert thing, a paper mache dog? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. But yes, he, he's, he's painted a kind of industrial brown. And really, you know, compared to a chrome ungulate, kind of drab. I have to agree. So, I mean... For Moose Jaw, that made it all the more important to reclaim their height crown. Uh, but how, you may ask? Hire hooves, 
longer legs. You've uh, perhaps heard of being on the horns of a dilemma. Oh. That just might be their answer. A ton of Canadians chipped in and paid to get a new, taller rack of antlers made for Mac. And in October 2019, with heads held high, they took the title back by, drumroll please, sound effects technician, 26 centimeters. Whoa! Yeah, I know, just barely. It's almost sort of sticking it back to Norway, not oh, yeah. by beating the record by very much. That's all you need. The event went international. The mayor of Store Elfdal came to Saskatchewan. They struck a moosorandum of understanding. That's their pun, not mine, with the moose jaw mayor. They did a moose dance together and uploaded it to YouTube. And uh, Moose Jaw raked in the tourism dollars from all the press coverage. The Moose Truce, again, their pun, said that Mac would be recognized as the tallest, but that Storelgan would, and I quote, forevermore be known as the shiniest and most attractive moose in the world. And, you know, how, how quintessentially Canadian to declare a truce rather than a victory. You might think that now that Norway and Canada have hashed out their differences, the whole biggest moose thing might have retreated into the underbrush. But no, there are other giant moose lurking out there with big aspirations. First off, we've got Max the Moose, awfully close to Mac the Moose, in Dryden, Ontario, standing 5.6 meters. He's not the tallest, sure, but apparently he's the oldest, dating from 1962. And he's lifelike enough that somebody shot him once. That's his badge of honor. Huh. Okay. And, uh, and less than 10 days after Mac made headlines by taking the title back, the mayor of Debien, Quebec, announced that the town would be building an even bigger moose as part of a water park, one that would be enlarged any time the record was threatened. Uh, he shrank that announcement back a few short days later, saying they would just make theirs the same size as Moose Jaw. This whole town also baked the world's largest tortier, nearly a thousand kilograms. Finally, perhaps more ominously, back in Norway, the original artist Linda Backe, who made Storelgen, is considering making another bigger moose. This one would be 20 meters tall, almost twice the size of Mac. And fittingly, it would be entirely gold. You know, I think I'd prefer chocolate. Choc chocolate what? Well, you know, chocolate mousse. Uh... <laughs> okay, well, with that, why don't you tell us something? <laughs> Okay. Now, supersizing a moose is eccentric, but understandable, I think. If I don't think too hard, anyway. I mean, there's publicity, the friendly competition you mentioned, and neither competition nor moose are eccentric on their own. So, tell you what, let's talk about supersizing eccentricity itself. Ooh, okay. So, in fact, have you ever heard of Charles Vance Miller? I can honestly say I have not. All right, I'm not surprised. That's okay. But in the 1920s, he was well known in Toronto, in Ontario. He was a wealthy lawyer. 
he was president of the O'Keefe Brewery, and he w had a hobby, an expensive hobby, in thoroughbred racing. Now, one source described Miller as shy and retiring, and apparently he was a quiet donor to things like the Hospital for Sick Children, but he also had a reputation as a practical joker and a quirky sense of humor. Okay, and how quirky are we talking about? Well, I thought you'd never ask. When Miller died of a heart attack on Halloween 1926, his will may be the biggest practical joke of all time. Miller was childless, lifelong bachelor, no close family. So with no one dependent on his estate, he'd made some interesting bequests that got a lot of attention. And what kind of bequests are we talking about here? Well, the Catholic-Protestant religious divide was a big deal in 1920s Ontario, and so was temperance. Canada had had prohibition coming out of the end of the First World War. Now, the O'Keefe Brewery was traditionally a Catholic-owned company, and Miller, as president, left his O'Keefe stock to Orange Lodges and Protestant ministers who would tend to be temperance-oriented all around Ontario. Now for people so he's, who, he's giving them booze money, is the idea. Exactly, exactly. He's giving them the profits <laughs> from liquor sales. And even worse, at the time, for these people, from Catholic liquor sales. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say today, but um, the, the Loyal Orange Order uh, was a, a rigidly Protestant organization that basically controlled Ontario politics. And wow. so to be left money in this way um, was a real slap in the face. And that was just the beginning, okay? So okay, oh he, my, there's more, okay. Oh, there's more, of course. So Miller had had a vacation home in Jamaica, and so he willed it to three lawyers who were known to loathe each other. <laughs> they could enjoy their vacations together, I guess. And then, uh, because of his, his thoroughbred racing background, he had shares in the Ontario Jockey Club. And so he willed his shares in the Jockey Club to two people who were outspoken opponents of racetrack betting. And the third guy was a big-time gambler. Perfect. And they could only claim the shares and cash them in and get the money if they did it as a cooperating group. Oh, that, I don't see that happening very easily. <laughs> no, indeed. So he's sort of publicly sort of tempting and then poking all these people with these bequests. And after this got in the papers and a whole bunch of, of um, publicity was stirred up about it, it turned out, in fact, that most of this stuff was worthless. He'd only had token shares in the brewery, despite being president. He'd already sold the vacation home. And uh, really, the only thing that was worth money were, th were the shares in the jockey club. So, you know, so that's so, part one of the practical joke. So far, this stuff doesn't seem, you know, it's he's he's needling people a little bit. But what put this guy in the history books? OK, well, you're absolutely right. So the showstopper of this whole thing was the final bequest. Clause nine of Miller's will stipulated that the rest of his estate, now get this, was to be cashed in and invested for the next nine years. Okay, so far so good. Yeah. But then on the 10th anniversary of his death, the money was to be awarded to, and, and listen carefully to this because it's a direct quote from the will. Quote, the mother 
who has since my death given birth in Toronto to the greatest number of children as shown by registrations under the Vital Statistics Act. If there was a tie, the money would be equally divided. The Great Toronto Stork Derby was on. So he's leaving what sounds like a sizable chunk of cash to whoever has the most babies in the next 10 years. Is that right? You've got it, Will. That's exactly right. And this is restricted to this is restricted to people in Toronto. Um, I mean, it and, is the center of the world. Well, that's 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 what I'm told. <laughs> um, so people did not know what to make of this. It caused a huge foo-for-a, lots of publicity, um, and initially the response was this sort of mixture of outrage and amusement and confusion, especially after, of course, the other clauses in the will turned out to largely have been hoaxes. So some people, for example, said that it was a you know dangerous and tasteless insult to women that put the health and welfare of the mothers and the resulting children at risk, particularly if poor families, for example, couldn't support these children properly. Uh, and in an age that was well before social safety nets, that was a very real possibility. Now, other people said that Miller was doing the opposite. He was trying to raise awareness of the needs of poverty-stricken women who were trapped by a lack of birth control. And yet others said it was simply another prank and not really intended to be done at all. Now, this group, oddly enough, included some distant relations in the United States who wanted a piece of the estate and the Ontario government, which wanted the money from the estate divided between the Hospital for Sick Children and scholarships to the University of Toronto, which were laudable things. Yeah, honestly, I think I'm kind of with the Ontario government on that one. Absolutely. So the will was contested all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, but don't forget, Miller was a lawyer, and he'd made sure that this clause was ironclad. The court ruled that the bequest was legal, and it had to be honored. So that means people actually took this contest seriously. Oh, you bet. Well, I, I should rephrase that and say it depends on who you ask. So at first, the contest made for some very fanciful feature articles in the newspapers, and that ran on for several years. The Toronto Star, for example, signed up contestants for exclusive stories. How were they making out? Were they still in the race? But world history overtakes us. 1929 sees the stock market crash and the onset of the Great Depression. And suddenly, the contest turns into something much more for some of the poorer people in Toronto. All of a sudden, winning that stork derby becomes a long-shot chance at prosperity. So who, who won? At the contest deadline, which was 4.30 p.m. on October 31st, 1936, it looked like it was a six-way tie amongst the moms who had each born nine babies in 10 years. And that's when, of course, the arguing started. Of course. Of course. It's always trickier than it looks on paper. For example, what about babies that had not survived? What if the babies born had not been properly registered in Toronto? What if some had, and wait for this, hard to believe as it is, what if some of them had different fathers? Good question. Yes, room for a gasp there. It 
it was finally decided that the babies had to have survived, they had to have been legally registered in Toronto, and they had to have been born to married parents. So the final result, it took until 1938 to figure this out, four of the women ended up sharing first place with tallies of nine babies each. And each of those women got $125,000, a fortune. In those days, in incomparable terms today, $125,000 in 1938 would be worth about $2 million today. Wow, right in the Depression, too. Absolutely. And, uh, and now you're talking families with a minimum of nine kids. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, now, because of the restrictions that I mentioned, uh, two other women didn't qualify as winners, but they got lesser prizes anyway. Interestingly, given the controversy over Miller's intentions, most of the women involved in the contest said they had, even before the contest, said, said that they'd already had or had wanted lots of kids anyway. In fact, there was one woman who participated in the contest who, as it began, already had 10 children. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking big here, Will. That's our theme today. No kidding. Yeah, all of I which... I guess kidding, actually. I, I, yes, you win there. That's better than chocolate mousse. All of which makes Charles Vance Miller the father of one of the all-time biggest, perhaps, practical jokes and the financial father of at least 36 children. And, you know, when you think about it, that's quite a feat for a childless bachelor. We've got a little trio of short items here to round us off for today. So we've got three guys who went big by going small. Right. And our, our first story is about going small for big profit. Jean-Louis Brennickmeyer is a businessman who left the family business to build, get this, miniature Canada. And by miniature, well, I mean gigantic. This warehouse-sized scale model currently has a miniature Toronto, Ottawa, Niagara, Golden Horseshoe, and Petit Quebec. Each of the cities takes over 30,000 hours of work and up to a million dollars to build. And while the buildings may be tiny, Toronto alone is already the size of four basketball courts. So Little Canada has a giant underground property in the heart of downtown Toronto, and of course, Little as it is, it aims to become one of the city's biggest tourist attractions. Very nice. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay. Well, how about going small for big, uh, shall we say, artistic merit? Absolutely. There's an artist in Calgary named Tom Brown, who's making a big impression with his tiny street food. Now, ordinarily, I'm not one for small portions, but in this case, the size is the point. Tom makes the tiniest food you've ever seen. His whole kitchen, with an oven, sink, stove, pots, pans, utensils, it all fits in a single briefcase. And they're not just props. He bakes dollar-sized pizzas in a tiny pizza oven. He makes waffles in a waffle iron the size of a postage stamp. He's made miniature shepherd's pies, dumplings, pastas, french fries, and gives them all away on the street for free. I Honestly, I don't know how much I'd pay for it. It's, a, it's nice to look at. Uh, no matter how small the results, though, I'd call that big-time dedication to his craft. Nice. All right, and last but not least, then, how about going small for big science? 
We've got a scientist at McMaster University who has set a record for building small. All right, so let's imagine you're looking at this scientist creation through a microscope. First, you're zooming way in on a human hair, which is about 0.05 millimeters across. Okay, now next to that hair, at about half the width, is a tiny snowman blinking and sticking his tongue out. But no, wait, 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 wait. Oh, Zoom in closer. And what's that on his head? It's not a tiny hat. It's a tiny gingerbread house. The smallest one in the world. With, yes, an even tinier wreath over the door, a Christmas tree on the wall, and a minuscule Canadian flag doormat. Perfect. The architect used a focused ion beam microscope to etch out his sculpture, which ended up being about 20,000 times smaller than the gingerbread house you build from a kit. Oh, and I thought they were and, finicky to begin with. Oh, wait, well, well, I've saved the best for last. The scientist's name? Casa Grande, which of course is Spanish for big house. <laughs> Of course it is. Of course it is. All right. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. If these stories tickled your fancy, there's plenty more in our book. It seemed like a good idea. Canadian Feats, Facts, and Clubs, published by the wonderful Scholastic Canada, available wherever books are sold. I'm Will Staunton. And I'm Ted Staunton. We'll catch you next time. Awesome.